following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Hey, good morning. Uh, normally, I guess I don't have to introduce myself that often, but uh, um, with COVID being what it was, and, uh, and then with uh, us having two services, I'm, I'm generally part of the group of people that can't get their act together before 11 a.m. So um, if, if it's a new face to you or just uh, seems a little bit familiar, um, that's why. I'm a, I'm a second service uh, attendee, uh, generally uh, very grateful to be able to speak here this morning um, and deliver the message for today. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles, I think it's uh, page 874 in the Pew Bibles or... Um, whatever electronic device you have. Uh, so first, before uh, we get into that, I kind of want to talk about why Luke 15. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and the sermon today is going to be on the whole chapter. And the question is, why do we have to go through this whole chapter? And I think one of, the, one of my goals is to encourage you to read your Bibles in larger chunks. One of the things I'm very grateful for is that oftentimes when we do a book uh, here at Cornerstone, we'll read through the whole book. That might be the, the, the sermon that you dread the most, but it's, it's actually it's, it's one of the best habits that we can get into. Oftentimes when we, when we get a book, I mean a real book that we want to read from the store, we, won't, we don't generally you know, read a couple sentences and then think about it and put it away, but generally we read through it until we have to go do something responsible, and then we put it away, and then we come back. We read it like it's something that we enjoy, not like we're studying for a math test. So I think that's one of the goals that I'd like to get out of this, is to encourage you to read your Bible in larger chunks. And then also, I want to encourage you to read the Gospels. The Gospels are an amazing, amazing contribution to the Bible. And you might think, well, that's kind of underselling it, isn't it? It is. They're probably the most significant contribution that we have in the Bible, and yet oftentimes in my own life, and I would suspect in your life as well, it's one of the last places that we go when we're reading our Bibles. Oftentimes we just think, I get the story, right? Jesus was born on Christmas. He did some miraculous things. He died, and then he was raised again. And then we get into the really the, the meat of the Bible, which is oftentimes we think that's the, the epistles, the things that Paul's writing about or Peter, um, John might be writing about. But I want to challenge that just a little bit. Um, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that we, that we see um, being planted and growing before our very eyes in the Gospels. There is a competition to rule over humanity that started all the way back in the garden. If you remember in Genesis, God created a perfect world, man and woman, and they sin. And Satan, the enemy, he tricks them. He uses God's words in a way that manipulates Adam and Eve into sinning, into relinquishing their position before God as his image bearers in this perfect world in order to, to rule over them himself. And that has been the competition that has waged 
since the world was created, since that original sin in the garden. And so the Bible is not necessarily the story about how God became our creator or how God became all-powerful or how God uh, became uh, all things and filled the universe, but instead it is really a story of how God became our king to rule over us. And in the Gospels, it's the story of how Jesus took that kingdom and planted it as a seed in a way that it would grow and there would be no end to it. And so, knowing the answer to the question of what is the kingdom of heaven or what is the kingdom of God, I think that is key to helping us to distinguish between the counterfeit kingdom that Satan attempts to establish and the true kingdom, the kingdom where we hear and recognize God's voice, the kingdom where we recover our role as his image bearers. And ultimately, I would suggest to you that we need to encounter and become oriented towards the character of the kingdom on a regular basis. And I think that is nowhere, it's nowhere more poignant or more impactful than here in the Gospels. And specifically, I think in the parables themselves. Because in the parables, we do not get a picture of the entire kingdom. Instead, we get a window into the kingdom and we see, as we go into the parable, how the kingdom operates, the character of the kingdom itself. And when we are drawn out of that story back into reality, we now have a choice. We have a choice to grow in further faithfulness or to put off until later implementing the character of the kingdom in our own lives and thereby growing in unfaithfulness. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, that's something I'll get to later, but Jesus does not let us get away with that because he says the kingdom is here and now. And so when we respond to the gospels, when we respond to Jesus' teachings, we are responding in one of two ways, which is increasing in faithfulness or increasing in unfaithfulness. And so that is my encouragement, but also my warning for today, that what you will hear, you cannot unhear. And the, the great grace that we have from our Lord is that he helps us to grow according to the character he's given to us in his kingdom, by his Holy Spirit. But then the great judgment is that if we reject it, who else do we have? What else do we have when we reject even God himself? All right, so the parables. I don't think they're just kind of one-off, you know, here and there, sprinkled throughout the Gospels. They encounter almost every situation that we run into as Christians. So how do we understand the relationship between grace and responsibility? That's a challenging one, balance grace and responsibility. Um, parables in Luke 7 and Matthew 18. What about what's the whole purpose of Jesus' teachings to begin with? You can find those in the parables in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. How do we distinguish the present kingdom from all the other kingdoms that are out there? Well, that's in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 13. What about the place and the purpose of the nation of Israel in God's new kingdom? 
Well, that's in Matthew 21, 22, Mark 12, Luke 13, 14, and 20. All parables. What about the role of discipleship? The role of prayer? The role of money? How about the future? How about the end times? How should we respond when we see God doing something that appears unfair to us? Those are all in parables. Matthew 7, 13, 20, 21, 22, 25, Mark 12, Luke 10, Luke 11, Luke 12, 13, 14, 16, 18, and Luke 20. All of these teachings Jesus gives to us to help us to encounter his kingdom in a way where we can respond in increased faithfulness. And I want to also add this to the end, that what happens if we don't? What happens if we don't regularly engage with the Gospels? What happens if we don't regularly engage with the character of the kingdom? Well, I'll suggest to you something that you probably already know, which is that we will forget. We are prone to wander. And maybe even worse, we will be fooled and we will be tricked by the counterfeit kingdom that Satan is continually trying to establish in this world and in our lives. Okay, so that's just the intro to the intro. Um, now, where do we find ourselves in the gospel? We're in Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you're familiar with the gospel, the first four chapters are really just prepping the scene. All of the miraculous things to get Jesus in a place where he's at the forefront of his ministry. So it includes uh, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist, the miraculous birth of Jesus himself. Then, after that, uh, chapters four through, uh, four through nine, uh, what we're seeing is Jesus is now separating himself from everyone else who's out there. So the Pharisees, um, the, the powers and authorities that are at play in the religious scene, his teachings, his value, his mission, um, the purpose of faith and his followers, Jesus is separating himself from the Pharisees. And if you remember um, from Luke chapter 7, there's a key verse in here. I want to read it to you. He's talking about John the Baptist being the greatest uh, man who's ever lived. And he says, when all the, and it says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. And this is a key distinction that Jesus makes uh, and that the Gospels make between the religious leaders and between those who are following Christ. After that, um, chapter nine through, chapters 9 through 19 uh, is called the travel narrative, typically. So Jesus is, is traveling around, and he's really establishing his foothold. He's establishing his kingdom and he's showing how it is superior to any other kingdom that exists, that has existed, or could possibly exist. This causes a lot of fear and anxiety in the religious leaders. And so, in chapters 20 through, through the end of the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus suffers at the hands of the religious leaders. He is crucified, he dies, and he is raised again. All right, that's for your uh, reading on your own time. We're in Luke chapter 15. Uh, this is really, I would say, the climax of the travel narrative, where Jesus is making the statement that his kingdom is for outsiders and for outcasts. 
So here we are, Luke chapter 15. I'll read it for you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, 
For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So I have one main point, a very short point. It may not translate to a short sermon, but the main point, we should celebrate when lost people are found. We should celebrate when lost people are found. So setting the stage for the parable is this contention. Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, and this activity should not be underestimated. I don't think we should just gloss over it um, as we are wont to do uh, sometimes because there are, there are very real dangers about keeping company with people who are ne'er-do-wells. Not people who do well sometimes, but ne'er-do-well. And that is what Jesus is, he's hanging out with, the worst that society has. He's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. A lot of times sinners is just kind of a generic term for prostitutes uh, or other people who are doing, uh, who are doing these kind of you know, low-level activities that ruin every society, that all societies agree this should not be happening. And here's Jesus in the midst of them, not only in the midst of them, but eating with them and celebrating with them. And the religious leaders are looking at this and they're saying, well, I mean, is he celebrating sin? Is that what we're doing now? Is that what the nation of Israel is all about, is celebrating sin? Are we encouraging bad behavior? Is that what we want to do? We want to conduct ourselves in a way where we condone uh, bad behavior or downplay the seriousness of sin? Even Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, says bad company corrupts good character. And here's Jesus with uh, a, a lot of bad company. And so really what the religious leaders are, are asking or criticizing uh, is why are you, Jesus, behaving in a way that appears to celebrate sin? And so Jesus answers his critics here with a series of parables that show how the kingdom views lostness. So the first question uh, that, he, that he poses is, how do people respond to lost things? That seems like a good place to start. And in, in the parable of the, uh, the lost sheep, he shows, well, which one of you having 100 sheep doesn't leave the 99 and go uh, after that one who's lost. Leaving the other 99 in the open country, going after the one who's lost. I don't know what the modern equivalent of this would be, but I imagine something like a, um, like a car dealership. If you just had one car stolen, eh, oh well, we've got 99 others. When we, when we look at possessions that are valuable, we go after those possessions when they're lost, especially if they can be recovered. And he says, you would go after the sheep. Not only would you go after it, but when you brought it home, you would ask your neighbors to celebrate with you. Okay, so that's, that's stuff. That's how people respond to stuff and things. But what about, what about money? 
that's another good uh, place where I think Jesus thinks that he can, he can connect with the religious leaders. Let's look at how people respond to money. And so in Luke 15, 8 through 10, he says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want to connect at least these two parables to the very beginning, which is, why is Jesus sitting with sinners and tax collectors? And here Jesus is saying that if these sinners and tax collectors can be recovered, then they are worth going after. Just like a sheep is worth going after if it's lost, or a coin is worth looking for if it can be brought back. But I think, I think some serious questions still remain. Jesus hasn't really answered the, the main issue at hand, which is that people are not like coins, and people are not like sheep. People are not lost car keys. When you lose your car keys, you don't find them again, and they have extra keys on the ring, and they haven't been through uh, a divorce, and they haven't uh, gone bankrupt, and they haven't destroyed lives in the process, and they haven't ruined their own lives, and they haven't left a trail of destruction. When you find that coin, there's not a trail of destruction behind that coin where it, it had to go in order to get to being lost. But people, people do that. People ruin lives, and people ruin other people's lives in addition to their own lives. And so now the question is, how does Jesus answer his critics the way that they understand lostness? And so he tells them this third parable. The parable that's uh, typically, it's described as the, the prodigal son. And prodigal, uh, if, you're, if you're not aware, prodigal just means wasteful. Um, and, and so that they got a wasteful son. Uh, but here, Jesus says that the parable is about a man who had two sons. And really what he's showing here is not how people respond to lost things, and not how people respond to lost money, but how God responds to lost people. And so here in this parable are all the elements that you would expect from Jesus' critics. There's the betrayal. So it says the man had two, two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. He's telling his father, I can't wait for you to die. I, I, it's, it's so urgent. <laughs> like, because you're not going to die, I want you to just, just give me the inheritance now. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta go. I gotta do my own thing. I gotta live my own life. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't be sitting around here wasting my life while, while, uh, while you're getting ready to go in the grave. I, I can't wait for that. And so his father, uh, probably surprisingly, uh, he divides uh, his his property between the two sons. And then, just as you would expect, uh, the son 
gathers up all he has, and he leaves, goes into a far country. And then, to his shame, he squanders everything that he has in wild living. And I'm sure you can imagine what wild living is. Then he comes to ruin, unsurprisingly. And he becomes, uh, really the best way of describing it is, he becomes a servant of pigs because he's serving these pigs food and he can't even, he's not even able to eat what's falling from the pig's table. Like even the, the crumbs that they have, he, he doesn't get to feed himself on. And so he finds himself in a position where he's serving pigs and, and, then, and then regret sets in. He says he comes to his senses, he comes to himself and realizes that it's, it's better to serve his father than to serve pigs. And then, and then the desperation starts heading back home. And we, we see from the uh, parable that he doesn't even have shoes um, shoes to wear on the way. But here's the key turning point. It's not found in the sheep. It's not found with the coin. It's here in verse 20. It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. These three things are shameful. It may not be apparent at first, but, but in the first place, uh, people who are the head of their household do not run. That's just kind of, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the joys of being in charge, is that you have everyone else running, but you're not the runner, right? Servants run, the kids run, everyone runs. Uh, your importance uh, is is uh, found in the slowness with which you can move. And yet, here he is. He abandons all of that. And he runs, and he throws his arms around his son and kisses him. The son who's no longer really his son. I mean, the son who has, who has you know, proclaimed death upon his, his family and said, I want nothing to do with his family. And here, the son confesses his sin, declares his unworthiness, and I love this in verse 22, but the father restores him as a son, and even more, even more. He says, bring the best coat, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, and spend, spend, spend the best of what we have in celebration. The returning son has done nothing to deserve this, but it is not because of the son that this celebration is happening. The father, he says, why are we doing all of this? Verse 24, because this Son of mine was dead and is alive again. And here's the key, and was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And if you do not see a richness from 
what we've already talked about in verses 7 and verse 10 with the parable of the coin and the sheep. This is where he's expanding on what it means to celebrate and what it means to recover not lost things or lost money, but to recover lost people. One person, one sinner, one lost person who repents, they are worth celebrating. Now, I want to make a quick note on celebration in the kingdom because I think that we should ask the question, first, what provokes celebration in the kingdom of God? And so we see in the sheep in verse 7, it says, one sinner who repents. Same thing with the coin in verse 10. One sinner who repents. But we are a people who love to celebrate. I mean, Americans love to celebrate. Uh, you know, great Mexican food restaurant, we will celebrate that. Salad coming to the table, especially a nice spring salad uh, with a vinaigrette and strawberries. We celebrate everything, everything. And I don't think that that's what God is trying to tell us here, is that we should have this, this kind of uniform, homogenous type of celebration to everything that happens in the world, including lost sinners. But instead, I think Jesus is being very clear that the things that are worth celebrating are not salads and not good Mexican food, but the things that are worth celebrating in this world are when things primarily people, come back into alignment with God's intended purpose for their life. That is worth celebrating. And I would also suggest this is the reason why, as Christians, as followers of Christ, there are certain things we cannot celebrate. There are certain things that perhaps produce great results, but they are not in alignment with God's intended purpose either for humanity or for his creation. And so we should not be celebrating these things. But what we should be celebrating is the recovery of lost sinners to God because at the end of the day, the shepherd who goes after the sheep, the woman who goes after the coin, they are the owners of those things. And God here is saying, I am the owner of you. I am the owner of people. And I will do what I can. I will do everything in my power to recover what is lost. So meanwhile, the older brother, continuing to be faithful in his duties, he comes in from working in the field. This is verse 25. And he hears music and he hears dancing. And so he, he asks, as you would expect him to. And so the servant uh, recounts uh, his younger brother's return and the father's response. And uh, unlike the father, who was filled with compassion, it says, and he was angry. He became angry and refused to go in. I want to make special note of this part of the parable because I don't think that this part of the parable needs to be in here. I think Jesus has... has easily answered his critics at this point. And so I think it's significant that this second part of the parable is in here, and I think it's significant because it's speaking to, it's speaking to us. 
specifically. All right, so the father goes out and pleads with him. The, the brother has a great objection. I have served perfectly. I've never disobeyed you. Yet you never celebrated me, not even with a tiny goat. And here, the, the brother who wasted all his wealth, wasted all of our wealth with prostitutes, comes home and you just spend everything like money's going out of style? And the father's response, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. We had to celebrate. I think it's worth noting also that uh, no one wants to take uh, ownership uh, for, the, for, the, um, for, the, for the prodigal son, right? So the, the older brother, your son. <laughs> and the father, no, no, your, your brother. And I think that is a key to this is, is the ownership piece. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders did not have ownership of these people. It was not a loss to them to have these people lost. These people were a liability, a liability to their religious way of life, to their piety, to their reputation. And their return only threatened that even more. But here, the father speaking to the older brother says, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. All right, so that's all I want to talk about in terms of the parable, uh, but I do wanna speak a little about application. So remember, the main point, we should celebrate when lost people are found. This is not a parable about the prodigal son. That may surprise you. Jesus is not concerned here with the recovery of the lost. That may also surprise you, since we just talked about recovering the lost. Jesus is concerned with justifying himself because people belong to God. God made them in his image. They were lost to him because of their sin. And his recovery of them is a cause for unrestrained celebration. This is not a parable about a prodigal son. It is a parable about a prodigal father, a wasteful and lavish father who spends more than he should, more than seems reasonable and practical to celebrate the recovery of his lost son. He spends without restraint in order to demonstrate to the world that the recovery of his lost children is all that matters. And does God not demonstrate that for us? by giving his own son, spending his life on the cross, taking our shame, 
taking our sin, spending lavishly on we who were not just bystanders, but we who were his enemies. God has spent on humanity in the same way that this father has spent on his son, giving us his most precious gift of all, his son. If you are not uh, a follower of Jesus Christ, you are uh, this prodigal son. You are squandering the riches of the life that God has given you, and you are drowning in a sea of death and sin. And if you turn to Jesus, I promise you, you will find the kind of acceptance and celebration that you see here in the parable. But I also want to tell you, this parable is not about you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not the prodigal son. It's really important that we avoid that tendency to spiritually navel gaze and just look at ourselves every time that we see something or read something or hear something uh, from the Bible. If you, if you can't avoid that inward focus, I think you're going you're gonna to miss the fact that Jesus is, is warning you in this parable as a follower of Christ, that when it comes to celebration, when it comes to celebrating, seeing lost sinners come home, that there are only two responses available to you. You can either join the feast or be left outside. And if you are comforted by your own self-righteousness as you remain outside, I think we all understand from the warnings that Jesus gives that it will not last for long. And just as the father is pleading with that oldest son to join him in the feast, the kingdom of God is pleading with us and begging us to join and to embrace and embody the character of the kingdom that is found in this father, in this story. To say that there is no amount of money that is too much, there is no amount of dignity that is too esteemed, there is no reputation too valuable, no offense too great, that allows for us to refuse to join God in celebrating the recovery of those lost people whom God is bringing back to himself. And for everyone in this room who's hearing this message, as I said at the beginning, you cannot unhear what you've heard today. And Jesus he gives us this parable to encounter or to give us an encounter with his kingdom, but there is also judgment in that. And if we refuse, then we will be found with the older brother outside of the feast, wondering why everyone who is undeserving is inside having such a good time. And so we should ask the question, how can we grow in responding to lostness in the right way. And I think we should look at the key difference between the father and the older brother. So in verse 20, it says that while the, the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And in verse 28, 
says that when the older brother heard what had happened, he became angry and refused to go in. Godly compassion is a necessary work of the Holy Spirit. And it leads to godly celebration when we see God recovering what was lost to him through sin and death. We need to be filled with this godly compassion. And I really, I really want to drive this point home. Don't walk away today wanting your compassion to be better than it was when you walked in. It is not about having better compassion or more compassion. It is about having transformed compassion so that the person sitting next to you in the seat today, if they have destroyed your life or ruined you, your reputation, imagine the person who has done the most harm and the most damage to your life, to your career, to your marriage, can you sit next to them, having seen them in repentance coming to Christ and celebrate, celebrate their return to God? This is transformative compassion. It is the kind that we can only find in Christ. And I want to encourage us not to hold back. Jesus recognizes that being regularly faithful can be disheartening at times. So here's to everyone who's the older brother, regularly faithful. It can be disheartening. We endure the difficulty of the work, of the work of the church, the work in our families, the work in our lives of our friends. And yet we blend in with everything that's happening in the kingdom. No one celebrates us, not even with a small goat. But when we are tempted to think such things, I draw your attention here to the closing remarks of the Father, and I think they're meant for us. He says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So brothers and sisters, remember that all that God has is ours. All that he has is ours. And by grace, I pray that we may grow in the character of the kingdom and in responding to the lostness in the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a glimpse into your kingdom this morning. You have caused us to look at the lostness that is in the world. And you have also caused us to look at our own hearts to see, do we possess the character of the kingdom? Do we possess the same heart as Jesus in seeing the sin, the death, the devastation around us? and in desiring to celebrate the recovery of your lost people. Lost people will come back to the kingdom because of the irresistible grace of Christ. 
but as they are, as they are returning, we see here that you are calling us to participate in that celebration of their return. To say that people are much more valuable than things. I pray that we would be transformed in our compassion for others. That we would be quick to recognize repentance and that we would be quick to celebrate the return of your lost people to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.